Hey everybody, welcome to the Growing with Fishes podcast. Uh, I'm Steve. Um, today we have uh, aquaponics dummy and as well as um, uh, Tom Alexander from uh, Sense Amelia Tips magazine. Uh, super, super awesome episode and uh, very thrilled to have him on today. Um, he's uh, played a huge, huge, had a huge impact on the cannabis industry as a whole, and uh, I'm super, super excited to have him on. He's one of the people I've been uh, uh, really excited to have on, and, and I'm just, I'm happy to have him here. So thanks for joining us. You're welcome. Glad to be here. Um, uh, before we get started, let me uh, quick plug um, Ouroboros Farms. Um, Ouroboros Farms on, um, what is it, September 23rd and 24th. Let me double check the dates. Yep. Um, I'll be teaching the aquaponic cannabis class over at uh, Ouroboros Farms. So if you're interested in that, be sure to check it out. Um, that class is also available online if you aren't able to attend. Um, so thanks for joining us, everyone. Um, if you guys have any questions and you're following on live, be sure to ask them in chat and, uh, and we'll be sure to get them over to Tom. Thanks a lot for joining us today, Tom. You're welcome. Um, so why don't you tell us a little bit about, um, you, you had, uh, you're responsible for both Sense Amelia Tips Magazine as well as The Growing Edge, and I'm, I'm sure that you have a bunch of books, which I, I didn't have the time to uh, to list off. Um, but uh, why don't you go ahead and tell us, um, how did you get started, you know, forming uh, Sense Amelia Ma Sense Tips Magazine? And do you want to talk a little bit about the inception in the early days? Yeah, I, uh, I, first started growing on Cape Cod back in 1975 and I just had some Mexican ditchweed and and me and a friend just put seeds in the ground we didn't know they were male and female and we sort of were excited when the males exploded with pollen we thought we hit the jackpot and uh, a few headaches later uh, we realized that uh, it wasn't what we were shooting for but then about a month and a half later we got some seeded females and that did the job i then moved to oregon in 1976 and immediately met uh commercial growers up in the hills of oregon and uh, got hired as a manager for this farm in rose outside roseburg oregon that was uh these hawaiian growers that bought a bunch of farms in oregon and we're growing uh, Oregon cannabis, which back then was getting 800 to 1,000 a pound. And they were exporting it to Hawaii where they were getting 3,200 a pound. And the authorities weren't looking for cannabis coming into Hawaii, they were looking for it going out. So then the next year I, I uh, struck out on my own and planted uh, over 3,000 uh, plants seeded from seed and ended up with, uh, 1230 females all really good stock we had indica back then and these hybrids of indica sativas and even some ruderalis and um, the authorities then swooped in just about a week before uh, start harvesting at the end of september of 1979 and uh got arrested and uh Charges were dropped, and since they didn't need the evidence anymore, three sheriff deputies stole the evidence, and the state police arrested them. And it was like a Laurel and Hardy show here. And um, I, before my charges were dropped, I was facing 20 years and $100,000 fine. These guys pleaded no contest, and the district attorney pled with the judge to give them leniency of three years probation. Well, that pissed me off to no end. And so I wanted to write a book about 
the whole experience, but all my grower friends said, no, do an ongoing journal. And so not knowing anything about publishing, I created this funky first issue in uh, April of April 1st, 1980, uh, the April Fool's edition. And uh, again, I didn't know what the hell I was doing. And I drove down to Humboldt and, and Mendocino and literally sold it on street corners. And uh, it was like a dollar an issue or something. It was really uh, 16 pages. Uh, and But to my surprise, it sold out within a couple days. So I knew I had something on my hands. So I went back and uh, did a second issue and the same thing happened. I even went further. I went down to Santa Cruz and uh, so San Francisco. And so it started really catching on. And then I got a, a national distributor who distributed it all around the country. And uh, then growers started writing articles and uh, it literally got a life of its own. And uh, at the same time, I uh, was seeing all these uh, outdoor grower supply stores in Humboldt, Mendocino. And then up, I also went up to Seattle and saw indoor stores. There were only a couple in Seattle at the time. And so I opened the first hybrid store in Corvallis, Oregon in 1980. And uh, we were getting, you know, big trucks coming up from Humboldt buying like 50 to 100 lights and and we were hydro farms biggest distributor at the time and so uh that was a flourishing business on this on, on in and of itself and uh so i did that until uh 1989 when the garden store was part of operation green merchant where they targeted the dea targeted garden stores, 62 garden stores across the country, and did civil forfeiture on the stores, arresting the merchandise and not arresting people. A few people got arrested that owned the stores. So they were basically had growing operations. And um, so they got popped for growing, but um, the majority of us weren't uh, involved in growing. We were uh, you know, legitimate businesses and got uh, wiped out. Well, that uh, subsequently, all my advertisers got, uh, were part of the Operation Green Merchant and were put out of business, most of them. But a year before that all happened, I saw the handwriting on the wall. And so I started Growing Edge, which had high tech information without mentioning cannabis. And um, when since tips got driven out of business because of the Ray uh, Operation Green Merchant, uh, everybody rolled over to Growing Edge advertisers and, uh, you know, grow shops that were left uh, felt more comfortable advertising in, in Growing Edge. And that actually was even more successful than um, Sense Tips. At its, at its peak, Sense Tips had about 21,000 circulation. And Growing Edge at its peak had around 45,000 circulation. And so I did Growing Edge until 19, or until 20, 2009, when Max Yield basically uh, killed us. And I just retired and uh, stopped publishing after almost 30 years. 
Awesome. Do you want to talk a little bit more about that um, the DEA raid and, and how, I know that you guys are one of the first First Amendment cases and you guys did a lot to help protect the the future of the the cannabis education sector. So do you want to talk a little bit more on that? Sure. The way they uh, came, they had different uh, uh, ways that they got judges to do the civil forfeiture. In my case, it was uh, they. I had two Vietnam vets uh, as my manager and, and one of my workers, and they came in, cased the place out for over a month, and I got all this information because uh, I got all the paperwork from my lawyer, got paperwork when we were considering fighting to get the stuff back. And so they came in, cased the place out, and found out that my my employees were Vietnam vets. And so they came in after a month of casing the place out and posed as Vietnam vets. And, you know, our store policy, because in 1984, they made uh, the drug paraphernalia law where they wrote in HID lights, hydroponics, all this stuff that grew. And they considered that uh, drug paraphernalia as long as the intent uh, to use it was to grow cannabis and the people selling it knew it was going to grow cannabis. Well, these guys, the DEA guys come in posing as Vietnam vets themselves and telling my employees that they wanted uh, to buy some lights and hydro equipment to grow cannabis because they had PTSD. And my employees said, well, we can't sell you the lights and hydro to do that. And instead of showing them the door, they got into a half an hour conversation about Vietnam and this and that. And after a half an hour, the guy, the DEA guy goes, well, we changed our mind. We want to grow tomatoes. And so my employees sold them the lights and they used that one transaction to declare the whole store drug paraphernalia and back to truck up on the day of Operation Green Merchant and took everything in the store away. And you know, it's weird when you do civil forfeiture, you got to put, post a bond of 10%. We, we would have had to put up $10,000 just for the right to fight to get our stuff back in court. Well, the, the town I lived in, Corvallis, was so outraged, they held a, uh, a benefit and raised like $15,000. And I was going to start traveling around the country speaking to raise money to fight them. Well, when they got wind of that, they uh, told my lawyer they were going to charge me criminally with conspiracy, and they were going to charge the corporation with conspiracy, and they were going to charge my wife with conspiracy, my wife back then, she's my ex-wife now, but uh, it was just going to cost so much money to fight them that they said, oh, or you can let us keep the, the inventory and we'll just uh, consider the case closed, and I... I had to sign an agreement that I would never open a garden store ever again. They never came after uh, the publishing company. I had separate corporations. They never came after the publishing company, but they basically did sense tips in by going after all my advertisers. And basically I tried doing it without advertisers for a couple issues, but it wasn't financially feasible to do it anymore. And Growing Edge at that by that time had really taken off. So I focused on Growing Edge and, and put Sense Me a Tips to bed. Okay, yeah, that's, that's a great, uh, 
a, a great explanation on that. So I didn't realize that that was, I, I guess what I had originally read is they shut down the, the magazine. So I didn't realize it was a separate. No, thing. it was financial uh, because they, all the advertisers would put out of business. I had no advertising. In fact, even when, you know, it was national news, it was, uh, you know, they, it was coordinated all at the same time. Uh, bookstores actually took sense tips out of their bookstore because they were afraid to sell it in a bookstore. And uh, it, it had all kinds of First Amendment issues, but um, basically that was during Nancy Reagan's just say no period. And, you know, people were just freaked out even being seen with anything that mentioned cannabis. So what are some of the more um, memorable articles or authors you had from, from your time doing the magazine? Well, this uh, writer up in Seattle, Michael Siegel, wrote uh, See a Green article back in like 82, 83, and uh, created the concept of, of growing, you know, small plants, but many thousands of them in a, in a space, and uh, obviously it had to be indoors. And uh, uh, just, we had uh, articles on, in, this is in the early 80s on fulvic acid and humic acid and and microbes, uh, 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 fungi, uh, all kinds of stuff that today is is being used uh, on a regular basis. We we always had an organic outdoor slant, but we also had a lot of articles indoor. I'm personally an outdoor organic uh, sun grown. Uh, proponent. Um, but uh, ironically, I, through Sense Me a Tips, uh, really promoted and pushed going indoors. And, um, you know, I would be, I was on all the major TV shows back in the 80s, Donahue, Geraldo, all the uh, Nightline, all these TV shows. And I'd always have a DEA guy next to me. And I go, you know, now that it's moving indoors, they could be growing right next to the DEA headquarters and you wouldn't even know and they'd get all pissed off and they were denying up until about 86 that it was even moving indoors and uh, you know by 86 it was so prevalent indoors that they they lost the war once it moved indoors I mean they you know bragged about how much they were getting outdoors but indoors just proliferated uh, on a huge scale Awesome. Was there any uh, was there any um, particular articles or particular authors that that really stood out to you from from the early days? Well, they they a lot of the authors you know use pen names, but uh, Jorge Cervantes he lived in Portland at the time, and it was about eighty miles north of me. I remember in '83 he came into my garden store and said, "I'm going to write a cannabis book." I go, oh, "Yeah, yeah. Well, come back when it's done." And, about six months later, he came in through the book on the counter. And I said, whoa, good job. And we went out and uh, sparked a couple doobies up. And uh, he became one of my closest friends. And, uh, and uh, then a lot of uh, anonymous writers who use pen names from Humboldt and, and Mendocino wrote articles. And then it, it sent to me a tips was a... Uh, I called it a lifestyle. We not only had uh, cultivation articles that were cutting edge, but um, P. 
people would write about their uh, their drama in their cooperatives. Even back then, there were cooperatives where up in Humboldt, they'd buy a bunch of land and divide it up, and then they basically uh, grew on a cooperative scale. And so, you know, my my partner's banging my wife, but we got to stay together because the crops, you know, and so we'd have all kinds of articles like that where uh, it was sort of the drama of the hills of Humboldt. And, uh, you know, it the whole scene was uh, like the Wild West. I remember uh, this, this grower friend took me to a... Uh, a couple parties on the same day and one party was out in Trinity County east of Humboldt and uh, it was all these guys drunk and shooting guns and they were putting beer cans up in the trees and shooting them out of the trees and they're all fucked up and I'm there holy shit you know this is you could get killed here so we stayed there a while and then they took me to another party down in northern Mendocino where it was all these hippies sitting on couches under trees. It was such a dichotomy of two different cultures of, of growers. And, uh, you know, it, it, my road trips down into the, uh, the, the Emerald Triangle and down to Santa Cruz and, and even down to Santa Barbara had uh, so many experiences that I want to either do a movie or, or a television show on, because all these shows like disjointed that just came out on netflix it's so lame it's so stereotypical and i want to do a show that's reality that showed the real uh you know life and times of cannabis up in the hills of those days and even nowadays you know it's like third generation uh kids are growing in the hills you know on on the same land that their grandparents started back in the 70s and 80s did you um did, are you familiar with the gentlemen who are involved with the book tie stick or any of that circle from santa cruz because i'm friends with a bunch of those guys no no okay i was just curious if uh if there's any overlap there you know only uh dave watson who now lives in amsterdam uh or he goes by sam selzniji was his uh his pen name, he wrote a couple articles in Sense Tips under Sam Selzniji. Uh, uh, now, Tim Blake, I've, I know, uh, you know, a lot, of, a lot of the people I lost touch with uh, once I ended Sense Tips and did Growing Edge. Growing Edge was uh, a more you know the articles were about vegetables and herbs and uh hydroponics and aquaponics and i would go to uh international society which are all the universities and colleges that do uh hydroponic and controlled environment research and i would go to their conferences usually somewhere in the world i went to 21 countries around the world going to these conferences and so uh you know, it became the information could be used to grow anything, cannabis too, but the articles were mostly about veggies and herbs and uh, things like that. But the ironic thing is that all these conferences would be international scientists from around the world, and somehow all the cannabis consumers, these 
prestigious uh, university professors and researchers, we'd all get together and, and find some cannabis, whether it's in Israel or South Africa or, you know, some country around the world and, and all kinds of stories uh, on there. Peru, oh my God. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll be honest with you, I haven't had, the cannabis I had when I was in Peru was, was definitely lackluster. Yeah, but when you got nothing. <laughs> Better than nothing, that's right. Did you ever spend any time in uh, Redway or Garberville area? Oh yeah, yeah. that's yeah. the very first issue. I went down to Redway, Garberville and sold it on street corners in 1980, in April of 1980. And then every, you know, back the first few issues were quarterly. So every three months I would go down and, uh, you know, uh, got involved with uh, the uh, people that were fighting camp and, uh, Actually, even one of my last articles in 1989, I went and I created, I had a, a press pass that I just made up and I got in with all the straight uh, news journalists and got into this uh, place near uh, Shelter Cove that between Redway and Shelter Cove where they were, had the National Guard and, and I got in there with the straight journalists they honored sensimia tips press pass and uh it felt like vietnam it was like a, a staging area for all their bringing in the the bundles on the helicopters of of cut down cannabis that was that was one of the last articles done in sensimia tips it's really cool my um the mom side of my family is from and still lives down there in the Redway, Garberville area. <clears throat> and so I spent a lot of summers down there. And my my early experiences, you know, were were closer to what you talked about. I, I thought it was interesting to see like, like you talked about the the really two different groups that inhabit that area where you have like sort of the leftover, really hardworking kind of uh, you know, lumber uh, timber fallers and that whole industry that collapsed that started growing and created such a like you know there's there's two such extremes that cohabitate in that area that it, it creates some really really interesting people and friendships and all kinds of stuff but a lot of crazy stuff too um, right but it i think that's part of what makes it so interesting is that, you know you could drive you know two miles and just feel like you're in a completely different world it's very very interesting in that manner yeah Um, so I read um, when the DEA and all that stuff happened that they went after your advertisers and tried to get your list of subscribers. Is that? Do you want to talk a little bit on that, or is that not true? Yeah. Um, when it all went down, the East Coast stores called me. I, you know, got into my store at about oh, quarter eight in the morning, and all the East Coast stores and Midwest stores were calling me because there were sixty-two stores around the country that all got raided at the same time. And I got it, I went in through the back door where no DEA guys were sitting. I, after my friends from the East Coast called, I looked out and they were all sitting in two cars. And so I, I uh, cleaned up things the best I could in the toilet and stuff, because I knew what was coming down. And, uh, uh, you know, after about two hours of waiting, 
I called my lawyer and uh, he was there when it all went down. And uh, now I forgot the question. <laughs> What was they your came question? after your. They came after your advertisers oh, okay. as well okay. as the subscribers with, and stuff. With my with my lawyer there, uh, he made clear that it was two separate corporations, and that uh, that any data or records or even computers up in my office were the publishing company corporation's property, and so they only took basically the merchandise from the garden store. It was it was a five thousand square foot garden store with um, on Main Street in Corvallis, and we had two huge grow rooms in the front windows, growing tomatoes, cucumbers, basil, all kinds of stuff. We we I I had an influence on the indoor garden store scene because up until then the stores up in Seattle and Portland. They had nothing grown in the stores. They hardly had any display merchandise. They just had shit laying around on the floor with a pit bull come greeting you as you went through the front door sniffing your crotch. What a great way to go into a store as a pit bull sniffing your crotch. Anyway, I created it like a stereo store. We had grow rooms of various sizes, closet size, bedroom size, and we had a big, big, huge one. and. We showed people what could be done, and actually, dentists and doctors' offices had small. We gave them equipment to do display little display gardens in their waiting rooms, and they were some of the most pissed-off people when the raids all went down because they weren't growing cannabis; they were just growing flowers and veggies. And so, um, it really uh, pissed off a lot of people when it all went down. And uh, no uh, publishing records were taken. It was all garden store equipment. Mainly, they th they wanted to put the garden stores out of business. And it was like whack-a-mole because for every garden store they put out of business, there were two or three that opened up to take their place. You know, it, it's, uh, it's ironic that uh, Operation Green Merchant actually created probably three or four times the number of stores than it closed. Why do you think that that was the case? Just the publicity well, or? They didn't have the rev the money to keep doing raids like that. I mean, it was, it cost them a lot of money to do the raid and um, the, they got nothing out of the equipment. They uh, either destroyed the equipment or put it on auction and uh funny thing about auction up in Oregon, growers were going to auctions, both state police auctions and buying the equipment at dirt cheap prices, you know. And so the Oregon State Police stopped doing auctions because and just started giving the equipment to schools and the schools then created little indoor gardens for the students. And so, you know, many growers bought equipment at cheap prices at auctions from the cops yeah that's that's too funny awesome so uh why don't you tell us a little bit more about growing edge that seems to be you know you switched over to that once the the hammer came down with um yeah i did that for 20 years 
and uh, it covered the latest uh, aquaponics, hydroponics, controlled environment. We went down to the University of Arizona. They have a five-acre controlled environment center that has the latest state-of-the-art. And uh, then all these uh, once-a-year conferences with the International Society of Horticulture Science, their controlled environment uh, sub-association sub that once a year they would have a, a, a conference somewhere in the world. And so every, so then I would cover the conference and stay an extra three weeks and go to farms that were grown with aquaponics or hydroponics uh, and do stories on the farms and get the grower to give information of what they, how they grow their crops. And like I said, it was mainly veggies and herbs and flowers and no mention of cannabis because of Operation Green Merchant. But the information was the latest scientific and technical information on how to grow hydro or aquaponics or um, greenhouse, latest greenhouse information. And so that uh, I did for 20 years. And then I did three books, The Best of Growing Edge, Volume 1, Volume 2, and Volume 3. And then I also did a, a book called Hydroponic Retailing, which was a magazine I did um, for about five years uh, that covered how to how to be a hydroponic retailer and and so i did a book called the best of hydroponic retailing too but all of them are out of print um so what was the first so you're around kind of near around the inception of, of larger scale aquaponics what was the first time you saw an aquaponic system uh, i think it was like the 84 yeah 84 85 um there was an outfit up in um, Portland. There was an outfit in Coos Bay, Oregon, and then a couple down in California. And uh, then there was one outside Denver also. Uh, I forget the names of them. But uh, so we did uh, stories uh, on them, uh, interviewing the, the growers and what they were doing. And then I, I did stories in the uh, late 80s, uh, early 90s on Australia and New Zealand, where huge, large-scale uh, aquaponics operations, where most of them grew lettuce, leafy crops. Awesome. And, so, I did a lot. Can you hear me now? Yes. Sorry about that. Good. I love it because uh, I had growing edge. I, my book, my audio wasn't working, and I was a big fan of growing edge back in the day. And I'm a commercial hydroponic vegetable grower. Cool. In South Carolina, I'm a certified South Carolina grower registered with the USDA. Still doing it. All right. And I did it because I got into hydroponics for cannabis first and saw a way to to build because I'm old and decrepit. So I found a way to make a living off of knowing how to grow stuff hydroponically. So cool. Thank. you. You. I'm sorry I'm, I was late. I had a, you know, I got a life going on over here. We're just still picking up from the hurricane the other day, and I apologize for interrupting. But uh, I'm here now, and I, you can hear me, so I'm ready for the rest of the show. Hey, we're glad you're here, man. Glad everything worked out for you. Yeah, we, we, we dodged a bullet there, and I don't want to, we can talk about the hurricane later. I want to get back to 
our guest here, and, and, and I'm enjoying the hell out of the show so far. And somehow my laptop was magically fixed by the old lady walking across the yard and back with it because we live in two separate places, you know. So, um, so I'm alive. I'm alive. Here, let, me, let me get so everybody can see their head and everything. Oh, yeah, I get you a little reflector up there. There you go. Now everybody can see themselves when they're talking. <laughs> All right. So who is our? I didn't. I missed the introduction of our guest. So just so I can talk to our guest, our, I our, have his name and who who is our guest. Sure. So sure. So our guest today is Tom Alexander of Sensimilia Tips and and the Growing Edge. Okay. Okay. So I kind of got that already, but I, okay. Yeah. Thank you very much. And so on you, with the show. You've done a bunch of writing uh, as far as books and stuff like that. Hold on. Let me get my Clemson hat. Um, you've, you've done a bunch of writing as far as publications and, and even some books. Do you want to uh, touch on that and, and some of the stuff that you put out? And, you know, what, what were the areas that you were looking to try to cover with your, um, you know, what did you feel that wasn't being covered properly that, you know, is uh, that you, you tried to cover in your books? The books were basically best ofs where we took the best articles from, we did it every five years and, uh, there's the best of Sensimia tips and then three volumes of best of growing edge. And we just would put them in like, uh, chapters, like three or four articles on hydroponics, two or three articles on aquaponics, three or four articles on greenhouses. And so we, we just would put, the best articles that we felt and uh, put it in book form. I wrote for um, various magazines. Uh, I, I forget the names, but uh, they're not published anymore. Uh, but, um, <laughs> and I just uh, mainly, you know, the, the, because it had a life of its own, the majority of articles were written by other people. Uh, every issue of Growing Edge, I paid writers over $10,000 for the information, which uh, nowadays is unheard of because writers don't get paid very much. And in a lot of cases, they don't get paid anything. And uh, it's the same thing with the conferences. I speak at conferences, but I don't do any conferences unless they pay my expenses at the very least. And most of the conferences, unless it's a big name, they don't pay anything, not even expenses. They usually throw in a free booth or something. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's the way of life nowadays, uh, both in publishing and in conferences. They don't uh, pay people what they're worth. So it's, it's not worth my while to do a conference unless they pay me. At least my expenses. Okay. Um, so uh, I guess what are some of the areas that you feel are not being? So you did a lot of writing and put in a magazine. What do you some of the, or what are some of the areas that you feel aren't being properly covered in the, in the media that's available today? Well, there's so much, so much information out there now. I mean, there's probably I get probably a dozen to fifteen magazines on cannabis that are all professional uh, and there's so much free information on the web, you know, videos and shows like this. And so I think it's, you gotta know where to go to get the information and take the time to find it. 
either Google or other search engine, but there's so much information out there that um, I think it's covered really well. You know, I started sending me a tips on nothing. Now to do a professional magazine, you need at least a million dollars and usually two to three million dollars to launch a print magazine. So I did it, you know, I was in either the wrong place at the right time or the right place at the wrong time. I don't know uh, how I got my start. And uh, it just, like I said earlier, took on a life of its own. And, and I uh, was really fortunate and uh, in some ways that it, it was so successful and unfortunate in other ways since they took me out. You got too successful and noticed, huh? Yeah, I mean, I, I did all the major TV shows, Donahue, Geraldo, and I was up against, you know, DEA. They always put, you know, multiple uh, uh, prohibitionists up against one or two of us, and uh, it usually was a lynch mob. And uh, But I would, I would get some zingers in and, and uh, you know, put them in their place. So they got pissed off at me for sure. Yeah, they don't like that. I was a little bit intrigued to hear you talk about even back in the '70s or '80s about the uh, uh, using it for PTSD. Even back in Vietnam, I, that's I don't even. I think that's the first I've ever heard of people using it medicinally or even referring to it in that kind of context. That back then, it sounds like a little bit of an odd concept now. But do you want to talk maybe about the you know the, the inception of more of the medical end? In Oregon, there was uh, probably in the mid 80s, there started to be these um, advocates for medical. And uh, a lot of the Vietnam vets were using it for PTSD. And a lot of the growers were uh, getting hip to that it had medical uh, value. And so Oregon, back in the 80s, they were advocates to try and get it on the ballot and uh you know jack harar came through and sort of took over the politics of oregon's politics oregon cannabis politics and he he was a proponent of it and so it it took off in the 80s and it took about 10 years you know until it got medically legal in oregon but um there was a large uh group of people uh, advocating uh, its medical use in Oregon. Oregon's a cool place. I I like living in California because the growing season's better. But Oregon is really progressive and ahead of the curve on a lot of a lot of areas. Unless you live at Marty's house. <laughs> I'm sorry. I live in. I live Unless in. You live at Marty's house. Not, not quite as progressive as Northern Oregon. So. Uh -huh. <laughs> the, the county shut my grow down last year and I'm, I've complained about it just a bit on the podcast so they're, they're giving me shit every week but you know just a little well we feel bad for Marty because it's you know really shouldn't nobody should be stifled or, or not allowed to grow and he's li least licensed to grow and he has people he care gives for and he can't grow because his neighbor won't doesn't want to see his pot plants in the backyard and that's uh, it we, that's it 
Wait, wait till we get to what we're currently doing this week. Wait till you hear some of the bullshit regulations that are coming down in some of these townships for dispensaries for California under for for next year. Just, just we, I am, I'm, I'm so happy to go off on that later. When, yeah, but we I got think, some like, good stories. Hog's got some good stories for the new show too. You know, I think we should probably do like a whole show. Like we should wait for the regulations to like finish coming out. We can do like, and I told you so video. You know, we can just you know, like all the stuff we said. The thing that's going to happen is, you know, the it's like 82% of the landmass of California is, have bans. But certain areas, San Diego, LA, San Francisco, Sacramento, Santa Rosa are going to become hubs of cannabis activity. And when these cities and counties see how much money these cities and counties that are, are embracing it, I mean, Oakland's going to have an area that's going to be strictly cannabis. They want tourism. I mean, that's happening in Denver and Portland. They want bed and breakfast or bud and breakfast. They want restaurants. They <laughs> There's going to be social clubs. I mean, the, and the tourism is going to be huge. So it's going to take a while. I mean, the same thing happened with alcohol. We, in some parts of the country, there's blue laws still where they can't even sell alcohol. And mm -hmm. so... Uh, you know, the same thing's going to happen with cannabis. We just have to be patient. the The floodgates are open. It's going to be. It's going to take a couple yeah. years for them to realize. Well, we're pretty <laughs> fucked up, and uh, so, and change. They're, they're going to change their ways, but it's going to be the vast majority of California is still going to have bans for a couple more years, three years. I'm glad you brought up the blue laws because here in the South, we got that exact problem. And I was discussing this with somebody the other day, how they were griping about the, well, similar to Marty's situation. You know, it's a little different where he lives and somewhere else in Oregon. And it's going to be that, you know, but I'll, I'll digress. Let Steve wanted to say something, but I just wanted to get that in. But I'm glad you brought that up because it is. I believe the same thing. There are going to be counties. There are always going to be, no matter how much we rail on, there are going to be counties that make it dry. You well, know, if, you, you be limited. if you look at how alcohol became legal they used it medically doctors were prescribing alcohol right at the end of prohibition and when the majority of states legalized alcohol for medical use the federal government gave up well the same thing's going to happen as uh, as recreational takes over the country i mean next yeah. year they're saying four or five states legis legislatures may legalize it and then in the election, there may be a couple more. So when like 10 or 12 states have recreational and over 30 states have medical, they've lost the war. I mean, if if they have a, a, a pipe dream that they're going to even make a dent in it now, when at the heyday in the 80s and early 90s, they were only getting 10%, they'll be lucky if they get a half a percent. I mean, that it's so widespread and huge. It's, you know, I go to the Las Vegas conference, which I call the vulture capitalist conference, you know, these venture capitalists and, uh, and greed, greed rushers, uh, go and, and I've been like, uh, to the past three years and each year more and more traditional growers, as I call them go, it's becoming half and half now, but these people only care about profits. They don't care about the culture, they don't care about anything else other than making lots of money. And, you know, that's going to be the big uh, friction between the traditional growers and the new vulture capitalist growers. 
and it's it's going to be a, 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 a an issue. Yeah, we fight that on the forum all the time. We're constantly getting out of especially Massachusetts legalizing out of the blue. We got well, our forum got flooded with with I I administrate the forum I love growing marijuana.com. And since Massachusetts got legal, we've had like we I think we doubled our membership almost from Massachusetts. And all of a sudden, every day I'm fighting people trying to take advantage of our forum and our customers by trying to sell them something or, you know, trying to or they're coming there asking us for advice when they don't know diddly squat, but he got a bunch of money. And my answer to them is, well, we have a we have a subscription premium type program for that where you you know you can hire us where i have we have a network which you know everybody on this panel is part of the network you know if, if somebody needs to have advice on that uh, if i can't do it i refer them to steve or i could refer them to marty or brain grow or dummy or whoever and uh and i know that they're going to be taken care of and you know I, I don't i just cut it at the quick like that you're vulture capitalist i like that <laughs> i can remember that because <laughs> yeah we're, it is you're right it's all over they're just coming out the freaking woodwork they don't give a shit about anything but making money well i had two friends in the publishing industry that actually got money from venture capitalists and that's why i call them vulture capitalists because they both of my friends got edged out of the business the way they do it is they get even when they have minority interests they'll bring in other uh investors and so that the original owners have less than 50%. So then they create a shell company and sell yeah. the original yeah. company to the shell company for pennies on the dollar. So even if the original owners have stock in the original company, they get pennies on the dollar and they get ripped off. And anybody that goes in bed with venture capitalists or vulture capitalists are going to get screwed in the end because they're going to just take the business from them. Well, that's right. why they make money, right? I mean, that's that's why they're there. That's why they're not pursuing their own ideas or growing their own stuff. Or, but the problem is, is that growing businesses need cash, and so they're desperate and they for sure. will get in bed with vulture capitalists. It's yeah, they better think it's to get a, be their big savior, and they're going to put them over the top, and they end up out. Right. Right. Yeah. If you ever want to see it in action, go to the Vegas conference yep. in November. It's uh, the dichotomy of the Vegas conference compared to the Emerald Cup is is unbelievable. You know, it's 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 the new greed rushers versus the traditional. Uh, you know, the Emerald Cup is the traditional growers that have been in it forever. What is the some of the more interesting tech that you've seen, uh, or interesting directions that cannabis is going, or what do you kind of see as the future of it? Um, I think we talked a little bit uh, earlier on the show on um, uh, how uh, you know indoor growers are are probably at least on the commercial scale probably of uh, their days are numbered um, just because of the the reduction in cost moving to greenhouses. Um, do you want to you know what other trends aside from that, or if you want to talk on that even a little bit more, whatever you want to talk on. Uh, what other trends do you see going forward in cannabis? Well, I subscribe to all the straight greenhouse uh, uh, magazines, and uh, robotics are going to become you know on the ones that are on large scale. Uh, robots can look for pests they can sense disease they can um you know see when the trichomes are 
ripen, ripening. Uh, so robotics are gonna become a big thing. And just technology in general uh, are gonna uh, take over both indoor and outdoor. And uh, I agree with you that the future is greenhouses and sun grown, although with sun grown now, russet mites and broad mites are, are up and down the west coast. And I don't understand because they only started happening the past four or five years. You know, they never were a problem outdoors. And um, I don't know where they came from. I mean, it's just a huge problem for outdoor growers. Interesting. I know. So you're involved now with a, a CBD program I was reading about. Do you want to talk on that? It sounds like a pretty cool, uh, uh, pretty cool project you're working on. I I am part time helping a, a, a dispensary here that has a, a greenhouse operation, a outdoor operation, and a warehouse operation, all legal here in Sacramento, and uh, they they have. Uh, several uh, licenses for um, when it becomes legal recreationally January 1st. And I'm helping them with marketing and advertising. And, uh, and then I consult individual growers that are new to the biz. And I'm an outdoor uh, uh, consultant. If people need indoor, I have subcontractors that I contract with to help people. But I'm a I'm an outdoor organic aficionado. So, um, what are uh, what are some of your favorite strains uh, over the years that you've run into? Well, Robert Connell Clark came through Corvallis back in '84 with Durban Poison, and I've always loved Durban Poison. And uh, you know, uh, Blueberry up in Oregon. Uh, was rumored to be developed at Oregon State University by a, a <laughs> researcher there. And uh, uh, just, I have a, a strain here that I call it the unknown because a friend just gave me some and he says, I don't know what they are. And it's it smells like a cross between bubblegum and cinnamon. And I, I'm a strong proponent of don't grow skunk. The main complaint of neighborhoods is it stinks up the neighborhood. Now, I'm sort of biased because six years ago I got sprayed by a skunk. And uh, I just tell people don't grow anything that still smells like a skunk. Your neighbors are going to complain. And that's going to be the major way that uh, they're going to crack down on outdoor, even though it's banned here in, in uh, Sacramento County and in Sacramento City. Uh, you can't grow outdoors because they use zoning law violations. But the only way they're going to come is if the neighbors complain. So don't grow anything that stinks. I mean, grow sweet smelling stuff. Who is going to complain about something that smells flowery or like bubble gum or like strawberries? Or, right you know, you're not going to get complaints. He's right over there because I, I smell like he complained about like some of the sweetest smelling plants like that i i mean just like fruity berry like and they're way out too like way out like there's no way you, um like probably at least 150 feet out so there there are definitely people that will complain regardless like oh, just, yeah regardless definitely they're prohibitionists and but I, 
hundred percent agree. Yeah, but people on the fence. If people didn't grow really skunky stuff, so that they had more of a reason to complain, I I hundred percent agree with you. But people will complain anyway. Definitely, they're the prohibitionists that think it's the devil's weed, and they will complain no matter what. But the people on the fence, which there's, I think the vast majority, I agree, won't complain if you grow something that's sweet and good smelling. And my pool guy and my lawn guy all say that the numbers are increasing of their clients that are growing. And, oh, yeah. you know, that it just makes good neighbor relations not to grow skunk. I mean, if you really need it, go buy it at a dispensary, but grow your own that smells good. Or, or indoors, right? With a with a decent carbon filter, it's not. Or indoors, you know, it's not not that hard. Right. Awesome. So, what are um, what are some of the? You're a big fan of outdoor growing. What are some of your favorite, um, you know, maybe soil amendments or or other tips you have for people that are growing outdoors or uh, advice for people getting started growing? There's a lot of people that are coming into the into this or maybe thinking about growing that would never consider growing before some of the new legalization stuff going on? Well, I use all the bird and bat guanos and worm castings and and uh, mycorrhizal fungi. And uh, uh, one, an important one, I think, is biochar. I don't know, uh, many people know about it, but you can buy it commercially and it's basically charcoal, but uh, it really uh, not only aerates, but adds a lot of good uh, uh, biomass to the to the um, soil mix. And um, uh, can I, I say just, something real quick on that with sure. the of charcoal? When I first started growing, I used orchid mix. You know, instead, then I started making my own mediums after that immediately, and going to the hydroponics. Orchid mix has charcoal in it. Yeah. You can buy it right at any store, orchid for making for growing orchids, and it works. Yeah. You can grow great plants in it. I would amend it somewhat, though. Yeah. So, um, just just making sure that your um, mix has good aeration. I mean, a lot of people don't realize the roots need oxygen and air, uh, you know, and just uh, uh, cocoa core does good aeration. Um, you know, a lot of people buy commercial soil, and it's it's probably convenient, but it's good to um, mix some additives to uh, supercharge it. One of the mistakes I made uh, in the in the mid '70s was uh, fish emulsion. I said, "Oh, if a little bit, if a little bit does it, let me add a whole bunch," and I burned up like thousand seedlings and had to start all over again so it's better to use diluted uh, uh, nutrients than uh, too much that's for damn sure what is your uh, what is your opinion on silica that's often one that we bring up on the show and yeah um, uh, what are your thoughts on silica yeah I I've used it as an additive I like it definitely humic acid uh, Vulvic acid. I mix all, a little bit of everything in in my mixes, and uh, you know, worm castings are are one of the great. And then 
my friend Jeff Lohenfels, uh, who's written three books, Teeming with Microbes, Teeming with Nutrients, and Teeming with Mycorrhizal Fungi. He lives up in Alaska half the year and the other half down in Portland, Oregon. He, uh, up, in, up in Alaska, Anchorage, where he lives, there's anywhere from a foot to six feet of humus, and that's what grows the giant vegetables up there. And he ships it down to the U mainland, and it's used in a lot of mixes, Alaskan humus, and uh, it's it's really good stuff. So that and worm castings are good additives if you can find Alaskan humus somewhere. That's cool. That's really cool that you were talking, I know you mentioned earlier, you are talking about humic and fulvic acid back in the day, uh, well before anyone else was really getting out in front of that. Do you want to talk a little bit more about that and, and how that helps plants? Because a lot of people don't really understand that and, and you're, you're one of the best people we could have to talk on it. Well, it just adds to the uh, micro uh, herd that's in, in your soil mix. You know, they the microbes, digest the nutrients and then excrete soluble nutrients to the plant. And um, so it just adds to the, um, you know, the, the nutrients in, the, in and of themselves aren't viable to the plant. They have to be digested by the microbes. And so it's just uh, good uh, food for the microbes. You're not actually feeding the plant when you give it when you give it fertilizer you're feeding the microbes with organics with water soluble chemicals it's already water soluble and available to the plants and actually kills any microbes that's in them in the soil because of the high salt content of the chemical fertilizers it just extracts water out of all the microbes and kills them and that's one of the reasons both in the soil and above ground that uh, there's pest problems because when you wipe out the the microbes in the soil, the first colonies that start to colonize are bad uh, microbes. And so you, you want to keep a healthy, good microbe herd in your soil and humic acid, folic acid help uh, help do that. Awesome. Yeah. Get Jeff, I don't know if any of you have seen Jeff's books, but they really oh, yeah. explain the soil food web in, uh, in non-scientific terms. And they're good books, teeming with nutrients, teeming with microbes, teeming with fungi. Yep. Yeah, we recommend those books pretty consistently here on the podcast and in the group. Um, and, you know, definitely, uh, you know, a lot of really good content and, and people are always looking for a book to read. Um, you know, there's a lot of videos and stuff out there, but a lot of people are looking for, um, you know, references for books to read. And so those are always three of them that we give. And, um, and uh, just think there are also the, the web series that uh, Elaine Ingram gives on the soil right. web is really good too. Um, and so those are, those are probably the, the two places that I send beginners to when they, they want to start, uh, you know, understanding more of what they're doing for sure. Yeah. I took Elaine's uh, three day, uh, intense workshop back in 1999 and 
turned Jeff Lonefels on to it because he was a Miracle Grow uh, advocate and turned Jeff Lonefels on to it. And that's he got his uh, <laughs> start that's with awesome. uh, the information that I gave him from from uh, Elaine's workshop. Man, that's going to feel like. It's gonna feel kind of like a coup in the cab, right there, man. Yeah, we're the we used to be the three amigos of cannabis. Jorge Cervantes, Jeff, and I would give talks at the Emerald Cup and various conferences. But Jorge is uh, he he moved from Sonoma and he's living in Barcelona, and uh, probably he's not going to make Emerald Cup. So Jeff and I will be the two amigos of cannabis at the Emerald Cup this year. And for those of you that don't know, do you want to tell people a little bit about Emerald Cup? And I know you've spoken there a bunch, but do you want to tell people about that? And, you know, not everybody on here knows about that. The Emerald Cup is uh, at the Sonoma County Fairgrounds in Santa Rosa, about an hour north of San Francisco. It started up in uh, Garberville about 12, 13 years ago. And it was just like 20 growers that wanted to uh, have a little competition. And uh, they were really scared shitless because you know they thought the dea would raid them but then nothing happened so then the next year a few more growers joined and then it got a little bigger a little bigger where four years ago they moved it to the sonoma county fairgrounds which is about a 150 acre uh, site in santa rosa and uh it last year had almost thirty thousand people and uh there's all kinds of workshops. There's a vendor area uh, that is huge. A lot of samples are given out. Uh, there's music, uh, n big national acts. Uh, last year, it was one of the Marley, I think Damien Marley. Uh, this year, they haven't announced the music, but it's probably going to be uh, uh, bigger than ever national act. And it's just... Uh, it's a combination awards ceremony. They get over a thousand entries in various categories. Everything is lab tested, so there's no mold, there's no pesticides, there's no uh, uh, chemicals on the, and uh, it's got to be organic. And it's just a celebration of everything cannabis. And if uh, tickets are on sale now, uh, it's a really fun fun event and uh you know stuff like that's uh, <laughs> uh it's i highly recommend people fly in from all over the world australia uh europe and it's becoming uh the it's biggest uh biggest award ceremony uh there is yeah it's gotten like way way bigger <laughs> Then I think, you know, like even the people that started it probably thought it would, that's for sure. And there's so many of them now, too. It's, uh, you know, which is great. I think it's cool. I just, uh, it's interesting to know, like, you know, like you said, having it <clears throat> start in Garberville. So I was relatively aware of it from in the early stages when it was just that. Now I don't even know um, where the idea started. I would I would have to think, knowing some of the people who are involved, it was mostly driven by ego but uh but it was still cool like it, it it sort of like was the start of an idea that uh business wise works out really well for a lot of people you know, oh yeah without, without other ways to connect uh especially in in a legal industry in a lot of places 
um, you know, it's kind of cool that it grew into something so beneficial when, when some of it, it was, you know, was, you know, just about who could grow the best weed, you know, it's a little egotistical, uh, I think is where a lot of its roots had, but I, it was, uh, it's cool. I like, I like the whole process of it and what it came into. And obviously some of them are not great. Um, and some of them are really good. That's going to be kind of a mixed bag as it grows, but I think it's cool that there are so many of them and, and so many really good ones. I know Steve had a good time at the Duke Rose show, uh, cup, which I think was, was really cool. Uh, and uh, one of the local ones here is not not so great, but we have so many of them now here in Southern Oregon. You know, there's a new one at the Expo. Like, you know, I don't even you know they have uh, just events now. Even though they're not cups, they'll have like expos and different things to meet. And really, I think a lot of that came and is based around cup events and and their success and they had in the business world. So, just kind of a cool cool thing to start out of Garberville uh, of all places. <clears throat> Well, I got to go, but thank you for having me on the show. I enjoyed talking with all of everybody. I really appreciate it. Uh, we appreciate you taking the time to come on the show. It's been really awesome having you on. Thank you so much. <laughs> You're welcome. I enjoyed it. And uh, for those of you guys that are interested in learning more, um, definitely check out it. He runs a really awesome Facebook group um, called Sense Amelia Tips uh, Magazine Facebook group. And especially if you're trying to keep up with news, uh, it's one of the best sources on there. Um, when I when I do the news show, he's, he's one of the sources. So thank I want you. to thank him for that. For sure. Always good stuff. Thanks so much. Yep, Thanks, thank Jeff. you. <laughs>